Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm here today with Jeffrey Merrick, Professor Emeritus from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, to talk about one of his new books, Sodomy in 18th Century France, out with Cambridge Scholars Press in 2020. Hi, Jeff, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, John. It's wonderful to be with you. Oh, it's fantastic. How are you? How's Florida? Florida couldn't be better. We retired here almost 10 years ago, and it's the best decision we ever made. That is wonderful. You know, Florida gets a lot of abuse in uh, the popular imagination, but I'm glad that you are happy in Florida and not shivering in, in Milwaukee. Yes, some of the abuse is deserved, I will say. <laughs> uh, we never want to see snow again, so we're very happy where we are. Right on. You know, snow, crocodiles, or alligators, I guess. That's a, that's a trade-off you make. We actually have both alligators and crocodiles, as well as Burmese pythons. Oh, my God, I keep hearing about these giant snakes. Yeah. No. Uh, some imprudent snake buyers and owners apparently let them loose in the Everglades when they didn't want them anymore. And they are multiplying. Of course they are. Yeah. So Florida has an annual bounty hunt in the Everglades to capture these pythons. And uh, whenever that happens, there's always a picture in the newspaper of the longest and largest one, which is somewhat intimidating. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know that I need to see that, actually. Huh. Um, okay. Yeah, let's get back to the 18th century. A largely Python-free 18th century, at least where we, we, what we're talking about. All right, so our first job is to put your current work into your intellectual trajectory, and you have had quite a career, right? You were, uh, and still, like, still just pumping out work. So I'm looking at your CV, and I see this very longstanding interest in gender and what we will call homosexuality, but I see really more broadly an interest in the moments where things go wrong. You're writing about marital discord, violence and disorder, obviously sodomy, but disrupted religious rituals, suicide is a whole nother interest. So I find that interesting at these places where you, it seems you look for the, to, to learn about the past from the places where where with the cleavages. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, I think it is. I started out doing intellectual history and then moved into political culture, and now I'd call what I'm doing social history. But the my interest in questions like suicide and sodomy and spousal conflict came out of my older work in intellectual and political history. Uh, my very first book has a chapter on the religious responsibilities of French monarchs, and those included enforcing prohibitions that are based on the Bible, on religion, on traditional theological argumentation. So, of course, uh, sodomy is a no-no, suicide is a no-no, marriage is supposed to be permanent. So as soon as I um, started going and looking in police records, rather than in the books published by theologians and jurists, I discovered that there's this enormous dichotomy between what is supposed to be going on in principle and what was going on in practice. In other words, if you just read law codes and sermons, you might think that uh, 
all of these prohibitions were enforced in a very strict way. In 18th century France, it was tyrannical, it was despotic, and then along came the French Revolution and liberated humanity from all of this despotism and superstition. But none of that is true. <clears throat> uh, there's a huge difference between principle and practice going back into the 17th century. So that's the issue I got uh, interested in, these, these points at which people exercise agency and uh, engage in behavior that is supposed to be prohibited, but is not even necessarily prosecuted, because the authorities, even by the beginning of the 18th century, knew that they simply could not enforce the prohibitions. They had to manage them. They had to live with the fact that there were lots of people who were doing things that they were supposed to do, that they had been taught not to do. So it's the, the tension between principle and practice and the space that ordinary people found to do what they wanted to do that really interests me. Whether it was to have sex with someone of the same sex or for whatever reason to say, I can't take this anymore, I'm gonna kill myself, or this marriage has become intolerable, it's supposed to be permanent, but I gotta get out. Yeah, absolutely, and that's fascinating. And I think this point that um, generally, you know, when people think about the past, they tend to, particularly the early modern era. I mean, era. What do we know about France? We know about um, the you know centralized French monarchy and absolutist monarchies. But of course, there's this ongoing negotiation all the time between the governed and the governing, and in the places like. The, these very most personal of issues, how we worship, how we love, how we live, are spaces for this constant negotiation and really wonderful places to study, too. Yes. And, I, uh, you know, uh, a lot of us grew up with a, an old-fashioned sort of progressive view of history that history moves from darkness into light, which is a way of thinking about history that comes from the Enlightenment itself or from the Renaissance, that, you know, there were the bad old days and now we live in the good new days. And what we're supposed to do is figure out how we got from here to there. And the assumption often has been that that transformation takes place through revolution, France and elsewhere, but I'm much more likely to emphasize continuity and to emphasize the, the flexibility that existed within supposedly inflexible traditional structures that allowed people a lot more agency than we tend to think they have. Wonderful. Yeah. I think uh, that's know, I, from the perspective of the study of same-sex relations, the French Revolution is not a break. The police were treating this issue before the revolution in the same way that they're treating it after the revolution. In fact, the police got more effective and oppressive in the 19th century than it was in the 18th century. So we're not moving from darkness to light, right? There are always ups and downs. There are fluctuations. And what we need to try to figure out is what's going on in a particular time and place that we're studying on its own terms, instead of plopping it down into some pre-established structure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also want to talk about how your work um, and your personal trajectory kind of fits into the way we study sexuality, and in fact, the birth of the history of sexuality. Um, in the foreword of the book, you talk about working um, for John Boswell in graduate school. And I was like kind of fan, like fangirl freaked out there. Well, um, but you, you also got to do uh, your, your career happens in a point where we develop, where the history of sexuality is developed, where anyone even bothers to think that sexuality matters. 
and then certainly the development of a queer theory of the history, like an acknowledgement of LGBTQ history as well as LGBTQ historians. And I think um, there's probably something, I mean, you, you open with this discourse for a reason, I guess is what I'm wondering, like what, how you, how your, your, like the, your time as an historian affected the way you do your history. Well, I entered graduate school in 1973. At that time, there was no such field as the history of sexuality, right? Uh, Historians didn't talk about sex. Oh, you know, you might tell some anecdotes about this person or that person, and ha, 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 isn't this all very fun? But of course, it couldn't possibly mean anything. It's trivial. It's totally marginal. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, what's happened with the history of sexuality, of course, is part of the larger explosion of social history that has occurred, I guess we should say, you know, since, since the Second World War. The Annales School in France saying that we have to look not just at prominent people, but at ordinary people. We have to look not only at things that change quickly, but at things that change very slowly, like uh, birth rates or uh, agricultural practices. All of these underlying realities that have more to do with the daily lives of real people than what this king or this general or this intellectual was saying or doing. So I guess that's the first point to make is that this is the, the history of sexuality is part of this larger revolution in the study of the past, uh, which has happened during our lifetimes. I mean, we, we, we have grown up with it. Mm-hmm. And so it's not surprising to me that I went off to graduate school thinking I was going to do intellectual history and then started reading all of this other exciting work that was going on, especially in France, but also elsewhere in Europe, and said, wow, this is really interesting. This is turning things upside down. Uh, I'd really like to explore some of these questions instead of the, you know, arid ones that you can study inside the covers of books. None of this has a whole lot to do with the real lives of real people. So it's all very good to read what some theologian wrote or some jurist wrote or what Voltaire wrote about sodomy. But it really doesn't have anything to do with real men and women who really desire other men and women in this time and place. For that, you've got to go to the police archives. And that's the other big point about the new social history. You have to go to the sources, sources that have not been used before, tax records, registers of births and marriages, wills, Uh, criminal records, both court records and police records. In the past, people might have said, well, we don't talk about ordinary peasants and artisans because there's no documentation about them. Nonsense. There's enormous documentation. So much, yeah. You just have to walk out of the library and go to Europe and go to the archives where the documents are that will tell you all sorts of stuff that we used to never think anyone could know about. So on the one hand, there's, there's the archival angle. And then on the other hand, there's the theoretical angle. Uh, so that Foucault and so many others t- uh, taught us that it's not obvious what sex means in any time and place. And certainly that sex has not meant the same thing in all times and places. So what we need to do using uh, sources that we can find in the library textual ones or the documents that we can find in the archives is to look at them anew and try to figure out what was going on in terms of sexuality in the particular time and place we're studying. What did these people at this time feel? What did they think? What did they say? What did they see? How did they experience? How did they imagine this realm 
of human experience in their terms, not in our terms, our modern, you know, binary terms don't necessarily apply elsewhere. And we've seen that over and over and over again in the uh, now enormous and completely unmanageable body of work that has been produced about the history of sexuality. Isn't it delightful that we can talk about, very honestly, the unmanageable amount of work that has been produced? The first time I taught a course on gay and lesbian history, it took me two days to prepare the syllabus because there, there wasn't much out there. Sure. Right? Now, now it would take you two weeks. Oh, absolutely. To figure out what to assign. So, you know, yes. and... <clears throat> No, for sure. And your career is a little bit long, has gone on longer than mine. But I mean, I started graduate school in the 90s. And I remember reading books thinking like, wait, I can study this. This is on the table now. Wonderful. Like, sexuality for real. It was still so new even then. It's mm-hmm. astounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's the, the source material also, because that's the history I have never wanted to sit in a library. I am an archive lover. And so, I, I mean, it's, it's it's good that you brought up the sources. It's the next thing I want to ask about. But tell our listeners, like, what you're using. And I've never worked in Paris. So please tell me about what, how do you work in Paris? Are they, are they nice to you? Are there good archives? Like, when you ask for things, do they bring them? You know, like what's... They may be listening, so I'll answer prudently. <laughs> um, for the, the study of same-sex relations in, in Paris, there are several series of police documents. The first point is that everything we know about real people and real sex in 18th century comes to us through the eyes and words of the police, right? There's obviously no podcasts, there are no video recordings, there are no tweets, there's nothing. The police wrote down everything, so we have to read everything we've got. Uh, with that reality in mind. The police records exist in several repositories in the Bibliothèque Nationale uh, and in the Archive Nationale <coughs> in different series. <coughs> Excuse me. And the second point is that these different series have different characters to them. The point that I find myself emphasizing over and over again in what I'm writing now is we must begin with the sources because the sources get us as close as we can ever get to these ordinary people. And when we read the sources, we have to understand how they were produced and why they were produced. Because these sources are different in the first half and the second half of the 18th century. They tell us different things. We can't ignore the differences and just extrapolate numbers out of them as if there's one continuous series across the course of the century. They're very, very different. We have to read them with that difference in mind and think carefully about what they are and are not telling us. Ah, now, these, the access to these sources. Um, a good question. Let me just talk briefly about two big sources. The first big series uh, is the Archives of the Bastille, which are located in the Arsenal Library, which is part of the Bibliothèque Nationale. And if you want to study same-sex relations, you have two places to look. One, there's a separate group of series, which we call the Morals series. Someone, at some point, started going through the files and pulling out cases that had to do with mostly sodomy, but also some prostitution, and filed them elsewhere. And that series runs from uh, the 1720s up to 1750. 
they're organized chronologically within year. They're organized uh, alphabetically. Not too bad. And those are the documents that uh, Foucault read. Those are the documents that Michel Ray used in his articles published in the 80s and 90s. But if you look at the larger corpus of the archives of the Bastille, what about all the cases that were not pulled out at some point and put over in the Morals series? Well, there are more over there than there are in the series that Foucault and Ray read. Oh, this raises some questions. We have a much larger sample to work with, much larger than we thought. Those <clears throat> documents you have to find by going through year by year, carton by carton, case by case. If you're lucky, on the front there's written the name and the word sodomy. Often it isn't, so you have to open the folder and read until you find out, oh, no, this is about theft of a uh, handkerchief, or this is a case about uh, an unruly wife. So it's very, very laborious work. All right, the other big series comes from the papers of the two. Uh, Paris was divided into 20 districts, and the 20 districts had 48 police commissioners who were the representatives of royal authority and public order on the ground. He's the go-to person if something goes wrong, if somebody insults you in the street, or if somebody uh, empties a slop pot out the window and you get drenched. Uh, um, so everything is in there, all mixed up, except for the fact that from 1780 to 1789, first a commissaire whose name was, ironically, Foucault, and his successor whose name was Comte de those two were assigned responsibility for surveillance of same-sex relations throughout the whole capital. Foucault from 80 to 83, Comte de Saint-Maur from 83 to 89. So if you go through their papers, theoretically, you're finding the bulk, and I can confirm this from sampling, you're pretty, finally, pretty much finding all the extant papers that exist about the policing of same-sex relations. Okay, so we got these two big bodies of material. In the first half of the century, the papers from the archives of the Bastille, those are mainly accounts dictated after the fact by police decoys who entrapped men in certain places. So their signals, there's conversation, their gestures, their suggestions, their propositions. And the, the trick is for the decoy to convince the man who's trying to pick him up or vice versa that they need to leave this place, the Tuileries Gardens, and come out and go somewhere to a tavern to have a drink, to one of their rooms to sleep together, whatever. And at that point, the police can, can arrest the man because the police has no jurisdiction within the Tuileries Garden because it's royal territory. The same applies to the Luxembourg Garden. Thus, the reliance on decoys. Entrap, bring out, arrest, and after the arrest, the decoy goes to the clerk and dictates, here's what happened. Okay, well, so the sodomite who's trying to interest this police decoy in having sex with him uh, obviously is trying to make a good impression, right? So these men uh, tell boastful stories about the people they've had sex with, how many times they've done it, uh, about how large they are, about how much endurance they have, and so on and so forth. So the sodomites tell the decoys all sorts of stuff about themselves and their past, what they like to do, what they have done. They reveal a lot. 
Oh, truth and nothing but the truth? Of course not. Exaggeration, downright <laughs> deceptions? Yes, yes, yes. But men who say they're not married, but they are married. Okay. Then look at the papers from the 1780s. They're not decoys. These are men who are picked up and then taken to the police commissaire who asks them questions. They don't tell very much about themselves, right? Because they're trying to protect themselves. They don't want to go to prison. So that's just an example of how important it is to look at the nature of the sources and what you can get out of them before you start trying to make any sort of overarching generalization. Because, well, they're not maybe apples and oranges, but they're different kinds of apples, at least. Sure. You, got, you, you, you can't assume that the, the, the same words are being used in the same ways. Um, what motivates the men, what, what the police are interested in finding out. So study your sources very, very carefully. And contextualize them well. And of course, remembering these other things, particularly about, about all sources, all times, all people, um, but particularly with criminal cases, the people lie and uh, the authorities ask the stupidest questions sometimes. Yes, they, they, they can be incredibly obtuse. And, uh, you know, if you think of yourself as a modern prosecutor and think, oh, my God, did, did you hear what he just said here? Let me give you five follow up questions, please. Yeah, please. Because they never tell us as much as we would like to know. Well, no, never. A, a good point, of course, because they have different questions on their minds than we have on our minds. No, I mean, and so consequently, you just have to really know what you're doing. Yeah, I remember when my advisor was telling me what what reading criminal records was going to be like when I got to the archive, and I was like, "So you're just talking about needles and haystacks?" He's like, "Oh no, no, it's needles and stacks of needles." Like you don't. Oh, oh, oh. That's a good point. Yeah, thank you. He was inspiring my advisor. Um, actually, you know, wonderful, but, uh, but this, that's part of the question too, is what, what's, what's going on that makes them interested in these things? What, why are, why are the authorities asking this question? Why are they doing what, what change, what about this procedure change? Why did that happen? And there's, that's all useful information. It just has to be managed. Right. Right. And just to reinforce that point, look at the two years, 1747 to 1748, when, for some reason, uh, the police decided that uh, they were going to look at these uh, reports that come out of entrapment and see all the men, other men that these men named when they're arrested. And then they start calling these men in. They track them down and call them in. This had never happened before. And these men come in and the... Uh, Police inspector says, look, I'm not going to send you to prison. I just want you to tell me the truth about your sexual history. And these men name other men. And then those men get called in and name other men. So there's this, this weird moment in 47, 40, uh, sorry, 48, 49, when it seems like what the police want is not to punish, but to manage the subculture through information, which all sounds very Foucauldian, doesn't it? Uh, right, they, they want to have files on as many people as they can, so that maybe when John Smith is arrested uh, for cruising in the Tuileries Garden, they can pull out the file and say, "Oh yes, we know all about you," and now maybe we'll send you to prison. Mm. But look, one of the most fascinating things to me is what the police actually thought they were trying to do. They never thought they could exterminate sodomy, right? They knew that the judges weren't going to execute these people. 
Okay, so if you can't execute them, what can you do? Well, you can imprison them, but at this time and place, there wasn't the modern conception of life imprisonment, right? Prison was a temporary thing. Uh, there, there weren't, there were no such things as life sentences. So you uh, imprison people with the hope that they will reform themselves, or at least that they will be intimidated and change their behavior. But there's so much recidivism that we know this didn't really work very well. So what are the police really trying to do by harass, surveilling and harassing all these men for all this time? As far as I can tell, what it comes down to is really trying to control disorder in public places. If these men had sex with each other somewhere off the radar, off stage in somebody's room, no one ever knew about it. The police didn't know about it. The police didn't care about it. What the police cared about, what was going on in public places as a kind of uh, offense to standards of decency. And to complicate the matter, even that changes by the end of the 1780s. By the end of the 1780s, they're only arresting men who are caught in the act. Whereas at the beginning of the century, they're arresting men who walk into the garden and look suspicious. It's, and unfortunately, it's very hard to figure out what was going on in the minds of the police, because believe me, I have looked everywhere I can think of. We don't have any documentation about internal discussions in the police about their agendas. We don't know why the sudden change in 1748 to 49. We don't know why this guy suddenly got appointed in 1780 to be in charge of surveillance all throughout the city. It's all guesswork, and you can only infer so much from the documents back to what the police thought was they were uh, trying to do. But it is, it is certainly, to my mind, problematic what they thought they were trying to accomplish by doing what they did. Hmm. Oh, I'm fascinated. That's a fascinating question. Um, and, the, the, you, and you see this. I mean, you can see it. Well, so... This is uh, one of the things I want to talk about. I'm going to, well, let me stop. Um, one of the things that I want to talk about is how much of the source material you include in the book, right? So you discuss your, you discuss a topic, you discuss these cases in great detail, and then you're, you have these appendices that are outstanding, um, more, very much more than you got, uh, like, regularly. And I'm curious about what made you choose this? Because I can tell you, you know, I read this, I noticed this, I saw when I was reading your book, I saw the change in the sources. So I, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, and I find it fascinating. And I love that I got to do that because of the way you do this book. But what made you decide to include so much material? Well, the history of sexuality has for a long time been dominated by uh, saying history mm -hmm. uh, broadly, the study of sexuality in the past for a long time has really been dominated by uh, literary disciplines, and if you want to speak a more strictly historical way, by uh, British and American material. Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody reads foreign languages. Um, this is unfortunate, especially because there is so much in Paris. There's more for 18th century Paris than there is for any other city in the 18th century, as far as I know. Vastly more than there is for London. Way more than there is for Amsterdam. So here's this enormous treasure trove of material sitting there in French, handwritten, sometimes difficult to read, uh, inaccessible 
to historians, let alone general readers. So I have always taken it uh, going way back as part of my responsibility, not only to present my conclusions to readers, but also to talk very carefully about the sources I've used, how I've used them, what I think I've gotten out of them, and also to make some of those sources available to them so they can read them for themselves, to see, you know, to decide whether what I'm saying or not makes any sense, and to come to their own conclusions. Um, I have been very critical of the work of Michelle Ray, which was based on a, a small body of sources. I've read a lot more sources, but people who come after me are going to be critical of my work. I expect that. I welcome that. And for that to happen, they have to be able to read some of these documents without necessarily being able to read 18th century French handwriting on the spot in the archives in Paris. Uh, I also talk a good deal about language, about words, about difficulties of translation. I try to make that as transparent as, as possible. Uh, as I said uh, earlier, one of the most important things we've learned in recent decades is that we can't make assumptions about what sex meant in the past. We have to try to figure that out. Well, I'm now working on translating all the police reports from 1785. I'm just ready, I'm just about ready to start writing that section. Look at the words that, that the police used and the men themselves used to talk about whatever it is they did. Uh, the thing that the men most often say is, I, je me suis amusé, I amused myself, I diverted myself, I fooled around, I had a good time. I always translate it as amusé, because I want the reader to see that I'm using the same word in the same way in every single case. The police almost never use that word. The police use the official word, pederasty. Hmm. And the police are very quick to label as pederast, Anyone whose behavior seems to suggest intention of engaging in pederasty. That means being in the wrong place at the wrong time, at night, uh, being dressed in a certain sort of way, um, accosting someone and saying, hey, do you know what time it is? All of that. So the police label pederasty comes from behavior which they think reveals intention. Whack. There goes the label pederasty, whether they've actually done anything or not. The men themselves are much more focused on what they actually did, not on intention, but on actions that were committed. And they use the general word amusé, but then they also tend to be very specific about what they actually did. They distinguish between uh, touching, just touching generally, or touching on the pants, or touching through the pants, or stroking through the pants, or with your fly down. Hmm. They're very, very specific in differentiating actions that are committed. So on the one hand, we've got the police using these blanket terms, and the men using much more specific terms. And we'll see how far I'm going to push this and what I'm writing now, but far more men engaged in masturbation than engaged in anal intercourse. I say it blanket across the century. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that mean? What if the history of 
same-sex male relations in 18th century France is really largely the history of masturbation, hmm. which these men actually could do on their own. Mm-hmm. They didn't need another man to do it. So what's really going on here? Mm-hmm. Is this about the desire? Is it about the physical action? Is it about the, the stimulation? Why is it important to do it with someone else? So I'm trying to draw a distinction between the way the police talked about things and the way the men themselves talked about the things, saying that uh, one is much more complex than the other. And the way to convince readers of that is to let them read the documents for themselves and see that and see that there are many variations on this theme uh, in the reports that the police recorded. Real quick while we're here, oh, you use pederasty and sodomy. Like yes. Those are the two terms that show up. Can you tell us what, what that means and why? Yes, I use those terms because those are the, the terms that the police themselves use. Sodomy in the first half of the century. Obviously, this is a reference to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of, uh, book of Genesis chapter 19 in the Old Testament, a tradi- traditional religious label. In the second half of the 18th century, they talk about pederasty, which comes from the Greek word for love of boys. So a classical pre-Christian, you might even say non-judgmental term, as opposed to a Christian judgmental term. And pederasty means love of boys, which brings up the whole question of the age-differentiated model in same-sex relations, an older male generally of a higher status and a younger male generally of a lower status, which all goes all the way back to uh, Roman Greece, of course. But the police use the level label pederast for all men, young, old, active, passive. Uh, That's just the general label, just like sodomite is the general label in the first half of the century. And a pederast is someone who is, might or might not be engaged. It's someone, there's a set of behaviors and actions that indicate intention. Yes. Okay. Yeah. This is something I've, I've got to think a lot more about this, this, distinction between intention and commission. Mm-hmm. There are uh, really two different ways of thinking about what sex means. And uh, I mean, the other, the other four-letter word I'm going to talk about besides masturbation this is prostitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think both of these have been largely ignored in the past. Uh, sodomy, well, you assume that that means they're having anal sex, right? No, no. no. The evidence is clearly no. Most of them were just masturbating, and they weren't even masturbating each other. They masturbate themselves. They distinguish. I masturbate. They masturbate respectivement, independently, individually, as opposed to reciprocally. reciprocally. Oh, yeah, right? that's pretty clear language, yeah. Right? They're very clear about what they're doing. The, uh, the other four-letter word that I think has never gotten enough attention is prostitution. I'm not prepared to give you a number yet because I haven't gotten to that part of the introduction to 1785, but um, from the other studies I've done in other parts of the century, massive numbers of these men went out to have sex with men for money, especially unemployed men, for which I, I have the information, and especially younger men. So that too raises question about what sex means. Are these men sodomites if they were doing it for money? Were they doing it only for money? I, I don't know. In some cases, 
clearly they were doing it for pleasure as well. But if sex means masturbation, if sex means prostitution, what does that say about same-sex relations? Right. It's it's not, you know, it's not uh, a whole monolithic uh, uniform category of men who did what they did because they wanted to go all the way and they did it just because they enjoyed it. It's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, much more. And the, and our common conception of what sexuality and like sexual identity means does not help. That muddies the water. It certainly doesn't clarify it. Well, and then if you think about the fact that like as you, you know, if, if what we're looking at is an attempt to manage disruptive behavior, then then it's about the publicity of it, the space that it's happening in. And that also alters what sex means. Like what, what people do when they're in the Twitteri may very be very much be different than what they might do with that same person in a private space. Sure. Yeah. Thorny. So (laughs) Well, and of course, you know, in, in uh, the fullness of time, when we really know more about what we're actually talking about sex between men is that we want to put this in the larger context of other types of disruptive disorderly behavior in public places, most obviously female prostitution, of which there's an enormous amount going on in many of the very same places at the same time. And the police also knew that they couldn't stop that. So there are periodic rounds up, periodic roundups, yes, but it makes no difference. It goes on and on and on. Yeah, so then it's about where you do it, limiting damage, you know making sure that the product is taken care of. Uh, venereal disease. Yeah. Yes, about all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So while, you know, thorny things, um, so you call your first chapter practices, documents, evidence, and consciousness. What's consciousness? What do you mean by that? Uh, I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> <laughs> I should hope so. That's the, that's the thorniest one, isn't it? <clears throat> it is. Okay, so... You know, if we go back to Michel Ray and we go back to Foucault and so forth, if we go back to the people who have theorized the questions, if we go back to the people who have tried to investigate the questions through archival sources, one thing everybody wants to know is, who were these people? Are they our ancestors? Where do they fit in the larger scheme of things in terms of the evolution of sexual behaviors and and attitudes? Uh, Did they think of themselves as being different from other men? If so, why? And I start addressing all those questions by asking, how on earth would we know this, given the sources that we have available to us? So you look, and you look, and you look for ways in which it seems these men might have thought they were different. Now, Needless to say, this is a question that is rarely addressed as such in the sources. When you're in the custody of the police, you are not like to say, oh, by the way, you know, I think I'm different from other men, and let me tell you why. That doesn't happen. So, if you will, the best evidence for this sort of thing comes from the first half of the century, from those entrapment cases where men are talking to other men who think they are like them, by which I mean men who are interested in having sex with men. And there, they're likely to talk a bit about their histories, what they've done, uh, what what they want to do in ways that suggest that they had some 
sort of sense of themselves that made them different from others. But this, I must confess, I find very, very iffy because it's not a neutral situation, right? It's a performance, a verbal performance that we see going on. These men are trying to persuade other men to have sex with them. So, of course, they're trying to appeal to them, to make a case, to persuade them in a way that they think will be successful, that will help them achieve their objective. And as we said before, we, we know even from internal evidence that uh, some of this is lies and, and deception. So I think we're very naive to take uh, any of this stuff from the first half of the century as transparent evidence of some sort of distinctive sense of identity. <clears throat> and in the second half of the century, where there's no, where there's a different type of performance going on, a performance not to seduce someone, but a performance to avoid ending up in prison, right? So I deliberately do not use the word identity. I use the word consciousness. And I try to look for ways in which the men have something, have anything at all to say about themselves beyond merely the acts that they commit. Because largely what we have is their testimony about the acts that they commit. On the other hand, and here let me talk about 1785 because that's what I'm working on right now and I've got very much on my mind. The documents from the late 1780s are unique because the, uh, the commissaire, Convert de when he had a man in front of him, said, blah, 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 tell me your name, da, 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 da. And then he tells him what the charges are against him. And then he doesn't do question and answer. He lets the man make a statement. So these are extraordinary sort of uh, compressed sexual autobiographies. Men obviously censor themselves. Uh, they choose what to say, what not to say. Some of them talk about having a particular inclination or a particular taste way back into childhood. I think that's about as close as we're going to get to any articulated sense of difference. And you don't see it in all cases. You see it in some cases. So what, when I say consciousness, I'm looking for any sense of awareness that their behavior made them like certain other men, but unlike certain other men. Largely, you just have to intuit that from their actions. Okay, I did this with this, I did this with this guy, I did it seven times, I've been doing it all my life, I did it here, I did there, blah, 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 blah. So it's all about behavior, it's about conduct. <clears throat> but what we rarely get is <clears throat> how they understood that conduct, how they labeled it because they generally don't articulate it. So the best you could find is someone saying, I've been this way all my life. Well, gee, thanks a lot. That doesn't tell me what I'm really looking for. <laughs> once in a while, once in a while, you will get the rare man who says, it's in my blood. Mm. And I'm not the only one. You know, there are these wonderful little moments where these lines pop out, but of course they're wildly atypical. So I think it's fair to say, well, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if some of these other men who are less articulate felt the same way, but I'm not going to assume that. I'm not going to assume that all these men thought about themselves in the same way because I have no way of 
of, of knowing that from the documents. So uh, this is one of the major reasons, reasons I fault Michelle Ray is he tended to credit these men as a whole with something resembling a modern sense of identity, which I do not see at all. Well, and then, you know, if we're asking the questions, we come at this as moderns, as people where gender, where sexual identity is this, you know, is at some point very binary, but that's breaking down a little, a little bit, but, you know, and, and so there are the behaviors, but those create an identity and a group and a, a sense of self and that we can, so we bring that into our questions about the past. And I think it really can muddy the issue. Absolutely. And, and of course, we shouldn't assume that one sense of oneself sexually, however you want to categorize it, was as central to people in 18th century Paris as it is to people here and now. No, given not all, Right? You know, given all the social work, all the mental work that has gone on during the intervening centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the places that you might, uh, that consciousness, like where we where we link modern sexual identity and is with modern gender identity. Um, and you talk about gender construction a little bit as well, and that doesn't map on with our modern understandings either, right? No, it really doesn't. Um, you know, people, some people have argued that there's a close connection between homosexuality and effeminacy uh, already in the 18th century, whether you're talking about it conceptually or whether you're talking about it in terms of behavior. Uh, in the police records for 18th century Paris, there's nothing conceptually about this issue, really. The evidence uh, in terms of behavior comes largely from the two years, uh, again, 1748 and 1749, when the police brought these men in and asked them to talk about themselves. And uh, something like 50 men mentioned attending assemblies of sodomites in taverns at which some men dressed like women, talked like women, acted like women. Uh, Some of the men, but not all of the men, give that sort of evidence about these assemblies. But it's wildly atypical. There's some other assemblies in the 1720s and 30s. There's nothing in the 1780s. So homosexuality and effeminacy, well, yes, there's a pocket of evidence here, but... uh, even that is just some witnesses, not all witnesses saying so. There are lots of female nicknames, more in the, uh, more in the second half of the 18th century than there were in the first half. That's, that's interesting. I'm not in, in, entirely sure what that means. Uh, there's the question of wearing makeup. Well, yes, but uh, aristocrats wore makeup. You know, all sorts of people wore makeup. So... Again, I'm asking us to take a look at what the sources tell us and to understand what we find in the sources contextually, not to grab a hold of nicknames or wearing rouge and saying, aha, sodomites were feminine. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no. And in fact, there, there are cases of men who attended the assemblies who left in disgust, who said, why don't you act like men instead of acting like women? So again, there are a variety of uh, voices. Not there's not one unified and uniform voice on this subject. So, can we draw uh, any generalizations at all <laughs> like about <laughs> 18th century pederasty uh, and sodomy? Um, one of my professors in graduate school said there are two types of historians. Uh, they're not Marxists and non-Marxists. 
they're not intellectual historians and um, well, social historians. They're lumpers and splitters. <laughs> lumpers right. are people who like to see the big picture and put the little pieces together and form generalizations. And splitters are people who can't tolerate that and come along and say, no, no, this doesn't work in this time and place, or you've misread the documents. I am absolutely, definitely a classic splitter. <laughs> All right. And I am much more concerned about trying to get our understanding of the extant sources right, or at least as right as I can, uh, than I am in putting what I found into much larger pictures, which other people are much more able to do than I am. So if you ask me about um, generalizations and overall conclusions, I would say the the first important generalization is that generalizations are really dangerous and <laughs> often deceptive and uh, erroneous. So don't do it unless you really know what you're doing. Second, <clears throat> uh, assuming that I know what I'm doing, yes, I think there are some generalizations that could be made. For example, I think there clearly is an 18th century Paris, a category or not. I don't want to use the category. There are men who behave in a way that made them different from other men to whatever extent they articulated that themselves. And they're different because they desired to have, they did have sex with men exclusively. We can talk about that some more and repeatedly. As far as we can tell, their sexual histories uh, involve only other men, and um, it becomes their uh, regular pattern of, of behavior. Now, we know about different parts of that across the century in different ways, given the sources, but yes, I think you can generalize that there are men like this. And we can see that some of them expressed some suggestions of consciousness, and then I'll stop before launching into identity and community. <laughs> so the generalizations that I'm willing to make are entirely empirical in character based on what I've been able to figure about them and I've been able to study. Okay, I'll go with that. There are a lot of places um, we can see some we can see some things from this work that uh, illuminate other discourse as well, right? One of the things that I found very interesting was how much class mixing there is, um, yeah. which I think, uh, which is definitely a situation we see in hetero relationships as well, um, sure. and in homosocial relationships. Sure. But there's uh, there's does not seem to be any breakdown there, or at least not much of a barrier. Yeah, that again is a, a very good question. It's one that helps to locate this history within larger historical contexts at the time. You know, if we go back far enough, turn uh, say back to the turn of the 19th, 20th century, when first, first people started talking about sexual deviance, uh, it was very anecdotal, and it was about uh, people of rank or wealth and their their naughty conduct, you know, aristocrats misbehaving and oh, was so-and-so really a sodomite and all this sort of stuff. And the assumption was that there was kind of a trickle-down effect. And you find this in police discourse, even in the 18th century, the Lieutenant General of Police, Lenoir, 
in the 1780s said that in the long run, uh, pederasty can only be a crime of, of notables, of men of rank. So the working assumption often was that naughty notables corrupted innocent ordinary people. It, it trickled down. Well, this is bullshit. All the documentation from the 18th century shows that the sodomitical subculture was composed massively of working men, and they had sex massively with working men. They had sex with people like themselves. And yes, there are noblemen, there are clergymen, there are lawyers, there are wealthy professionals who get caught by the police in public places. They are far and away the exception rather than the rule. Uh, I have to add to that that we know that there are many men who supported themselves by acting as intermediaries, as procurers. They picked up men who were willing to have sex with men for money and took them off stage to have sex with men. And we have no records about that. Of course, right. Right. So we've got upper class people, some in the gardens, more on the margins, uh, being with intermediaries acting, acting between them. But the most obvious and important fact about the subculture, it's working men having sex with working men. Uh, the, the book I published last year has a chapter on it, uh, a chapter in it on masters and servants, which is a really uh, interesting discussion about uh, social differentiation and, and class. It's obvious that lots of masters were having sex with their servants. In some cases, it's obvious that they hired them for that purpose. Uh, some of that we know through arrests. More of it we know through talk, again, about what's going on off stage rather than on stage. One of the interesting things about the master-servant relationship is it's a traditional hierarchical relationship, right? What could be more traditional than that with a superior and an inferior? And it turns out to be, in some cases at least, a, a site of sexual interaction. Uh, are the police going to come into a wealthy man's house and arrest him for having sex with a servant? Of course not. So it's a good example of the ways in which sexual deviance can operate undetected, unpunished, within traditional structures. In a monastery, in the army, there are multiple environments in which, in which this can take place and nothing happens, as opposed to what's going on in the public places that are, are under surveillance by the police. So yes, uh, on the one hand, there's a good deal of class intermingling. On the other hand, for most sodomites, the people they had sex with were people like themselves, working class people. And people, well, and the people they have access to, right? That's who you're going to yes. you spend time with. Yes. Yeah. So uh, another vastly under investigated subject is friendship. Lots of men refer to friends, and some of these friends are obviously men they had ongoing sexual relationships with. And through friends, they met friends of friends. Mm -hmm. So beyond the solicitation that's going on in public places, there are vast networks of acquaintanceship, in many cases, sexual acquaintanceship, that we don't have any access to because these people weren't arrested. So I don't want to say what we're seeing is the tip of the iceberg, but... Uh, there's lots, lots more sex going on that we don't know about. Sure. You know, and that word friend covers so many sins or, some, or, or virtues for that matter. You know, 
um, in my work on concubines, men call their their women who've been they've been living with for twenty years with whom they have seven children. Oh, my friend. I'm like, well, yes. right. Yes, in eighteen in eighteenth century France, it's common for husband and wife to call each other friend. Sure, right. and so there's a lot of work that needs to be done on this. I yeah, mean, yeah. Adam Gray wrote a wonderful book about friendship, but there's so much more that needs to be done about this uh, this murky connection between people that is called friendship. Sure. And also, you know, the, that line between the intimate and the erotic, like that's a pretty porous wall. And we certainly don't have a handle on where that sits for, you know, now, much less most of history. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's an, that's the next thing. Um, so another thing that um, we tend to see um, is um, I, I was also kind of interested in the, the geography of this situation that there are these places in Paris uh, where where men get together and they know that they can go and they can hang out the bars that there seems to be a fairly well known like yeah geography Lo- there are places you can go if you want to meet friends. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. There, you know, there's a well established uh, geography, and I think there's some changes in that geography across the course of the century. No, again, there's lots we don't know. We only know what we know from the, the police records that we have, but. Um, so, for example, in the early decades of the century, there were a lot of men arrested outside the Luxembourg Gardens. Very few in the second half of the century. Hmm. So there, there may be some changes in, in, in time. That's, so the geography has a chronology, I guess, is, is part of what I want to say. The reason the places like the Luxembourg and the Tuileries are so popular is because the police can't arrest you in there. That's, yeah, that's a good sign. That's good. <laughs> a very good thing, man. Right? <laughs> the worst thing that happen is you can get picked up by a decoy. So uh, many police records then express awareness of decoys. And, uh, you know, ironically, there are cases where men say to a decoy, hey, you know, there are decoys at work here. you got to be careful. <laughs> you know, don't talk to the wrong man. And um, I've been able to identify by name more than 30 of these decoys and to study in depth uh, a, a couple of them and their activity as decoys. But another part of the geography is, how did men learn this stuff? Where to go? Right? It's not as if you can pick up the newspaper and look, turn to the back page and say, if you want to have sex with men, here's where you go. Uh, so <laughs> right. this is information that's transmitted orally. And the question is especially um, pressing if you remember the fact that at least half, and I suspect more than a half of these men who were arrested were not native Parisians. They immigrated. Paris, from the provinces. In fact, uh, I can tell you that in in 1785, of the men who admitted having sex with men, only one-fifth of them were native Parisians. Hmm. So there's a lot of men learning where to go. And luckily for us, in more than a few records, the men will say, oh, I heard that. If you want to have sex, you go to the Tuileries. Or if you want to make some money, you go to the Tuileries. And in a couple of cases, they even will tell you who, the name of the person uh, who, who gave them this information. Some say they went, they go there out of curiosity to see what, what's going on. So there's a learning curve mm-hmm. to surviving uh, as a pederast in late 18th century Paris. You've got to learn the geography. You've got to uh, be careful who whom you talk to. 
and uh, they're, they're also foreigners. I've got yes. Englishmen, I've got uh, a Russian, I've got a Portuguese, I've got some Italians. They all have to learn the same thing, where to go and what to do. They have to learn the signals. I have a, a man in 785 who tried to pick up another man who refuses to respond to his signals. And the man says in his statement, I wanted, I, I wanted to leave with this guy, but he didn't understand my signals. Wow. Yeah. And how do you get that? And and then they also have to learn how to talk to the police in order in ways that will keep them from being arrested. That's another language you have to learn. Yes. Uh, yes. So uh, I'm, I'm tempted to call part of this introduction to 1785, uh, learning how to be a pederast. Yeah. I like learning how. And it's interesting, too, you know, when I hear, you know, that uh, working class people are the, are getting arrested and foreigners are getting arrested. I just see a lot of low cipher power, like places, access of power, right? Of, so you've got a couple people. You who are you gonna who are you gonna chase? Well, not the person who clearly is of a higher social status than you. Not yes. the person. Yes, yeah. uh, people with uh, people with titles and monies absolutely get preferential treatment. Uh, almost always, when they are arrested, they are either released immediately even if the evidence against them is absolutely conclusive, even if they have been arrested before. So they're either released immediately or they are conducted before the Lieutenant General of Police, who almost always gives them a stern warning and lets them go. So yes, this is definitely not equal justice before the law. No, certainly, but it further complicates, complicates the issue. Um, and in, you know, in your life as a splitter, uh, that's this is another place that would make it even harder to make these generalizations. Yes, I mean, I, I often find myself starting a paragraph saying, okay, now I'm going to try to formulate a topic sentence for this paragraph that is general enough to um, suggest some sort of statement about what it is I'm talking about, but yet it also leaves me enough flexibility to spend most of the paragraph talking about all the exceptions to what I've just uh, just suggested. Yeah, <laughs> good work. Oh, we are, oh wow, we've spent so much time talking. Um, and so we've got to wrap this up, but let's, so I know that you are writing an immense amount of material, okay? Like, uh, wow, are you writing like crazy. Uh, so Sunny Florida appears to be very good for your writing. So tell our listeners what to expect from you in the very near future. Uh, I should add that um, this is in large part due to the pandemic, right? What else are we gonna do during a pandemic except, uh, uh, you know, burrow into our rooms and, and do our work? So it's been a it's been an enormously satisfying and um, salutary outlet for me during this time of uh, isolation. So uh, there are two books that will soon be ready to go. One is a translation of all the police reports of Commissioner Foucault from eighty to eighty three. The other is all the reports of Commissioner Convert des from eighty five. They're from the same decade, but these reports are very, very different in character, as, as readers will see. And they illustrate the point that different types of documents tell us different types of things, which give us more or, less, more or less access to things like what the police thought they were doing or what these men might have, might have thought of themselves. Um, 
one of those, both of those books should be done by the end of this year. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, I'm part of a team of historians um, with an ambitious project to document all the men arrested for sodomy or accused of sodomy in 18th century Paris. Uh, the website is already up in a very sketchy form, but ultimately the more important part of what we're doing is creating a database with all the demographic information about all of these men um, different decades from the different type of documents so that we can finally formulate some reliable generalizations about, <laughs> about the things that I keep hedging about because I'm reluctant to generalize because we don't know enough yet. There are, there are years and years of documents we haven't investigated yet and we don't know what we're going to find there. Wow. So uh, this, this database will include you know, name, uh, address, where you came from in the provinces, age, where you live, who your friends are, where you were arrested, what you were doing, any, anything and everything that we can think of, both quantifiable and qualitative evidence as well. Uh, the qualitative evidence is just as important to me as the, as the quantitative. Then when we have all this entered, we will be able to run all sorts of multivariable analyses. Were men who came from the provinces as opposed to men who were born in Paris? Were butchers as opposed to bakers? Were men in their 20s as opposed to men in their 30s? Right? More likely to do this or that or, oh, you know, this, the kind of correlations that are, you simply can't do manually, or at least I can't do manually because there's just too much information to manage. I, I've done and I'm trying to do some more very crude ones, but we need the machinery to help us uh, make sense of the larger picture. So uh, this, the current team working on this project, uh, uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure I'll see it completed in my lifetime. There's so much work left to go, but we want to get it started. Wow. And we want to make this accessible to other people to use. For uh, instructors to use in their courses, well, I guess it'll be graduate courses because the material is, in, is in, in, in French, but some of it may be, some of it can be made, made available in English uh, form too for, for undergraduates to use. And oh, I have a, a couple more articles. I keep saying this is my last word on this subject and then I keep thinking of other things <laughs> that I write about. So if you, Look at the break between 1749 and 1780. Those have always been the missing decades. What was going on when the police stopped bringing all these men in and getting more names from them, and when Commissaire Foucault took over in 1780? Well, we haven't done all those years yet, but I think when we have identified all those documents, I'd like to write something about those missing decades, and then maybe something, say something a bit more intelligent about change in continuity over the century as a whole, once we know something about that big gap that exists right there. <clears throat> I have been interested, I am very interested in the elusive subject of sex between women, which we know so much less about because women weren't out there cruising for each other in the Tuileries and elsewhere. Undoubtedly, women were having sex with each other, but they're like the men who were having sex with each other off stage. We only know what the police told, tell us 
and the police don't tell us about what's going on off stage. We only get uh, peripheral references to that sort of thing. So I have it in mind to do something like look at every single folder in the archives of the Bastille, say from 1730 to 1735, and luckily all of those are, I have been digitized, so I can do that right here in my study. Look at every case involving a woman, whether she's accused of theft, whether she's accused of being a disobedient daughter, whether she's accused of being a rebellious wife, whether she insulted someone on in the street. Look at every single case involving a woman and see if anywhere tucked in there, not as the major accusation, if there are any allegations about sex with women. I can already tell you that there will be some of those because I have seen some. The question is how many. Yeah, and what do you how how you're going to work with those? That is that's a project. That's I mean it'll be it'll be an enormous amount of work for a, a very modest result, but it'll at least be a systematic attempt to find out something. Um, you know, I've got the one case in the in the book published last year from the the 1730s, and it's interesting that when you do find a case about women, it's much more likely to involve talk about gender difference than cases involving men. Because what the women are almost always accused of is um, deviant behavior in terms of how they dress and how they act. Men are routinely accused of that, but women who have sex with women are routinely accused of behaving like men. So same-sex relations between women are far more gendered than same-sex relations between men. Yeah, and I'm guessing also that just... That's how same-sex relations between women become noticeable or worth bothering. Exactly. Right? It's that kind of disruption. Well, right, because you know, if you see these men walking around, you wouldn't say, "Oh, they look different." They don't look any different from other men. Right. Yeah. And if I ever finish all this stuff about same-sex relations, which I will eventually, I have another book um, to in the works to a comparable book about suicide in 18th century France. Again, based on going back to the documents, uh, which no one has really ever done systematically, and trying to study what they do and don't tell us. And actually, in that book, I think there are going to be several parts. There'll be a part about intellectual history. There'll be a part about legal history, about punishment, and a part about social history, and about the men and women who killed themselves, and how their friends and relatives and neighbors talked about them. Mm-hmm. And in that one, I'm going to try to say something about more generally about intellectual, legal, and social approaches to a type of deviant behavior and emphasize the point that, you know, the jurists and the sermonizers and the Voltaires had knew nothing about real men and women who killed themselves and why they did it. It had nothing to do with whether or not they went to church. I don't think it had anything to do with whether or not they were good Christians. It had to do with the real facts of real life, like poverty. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which what what are they going to talk about? Wow, that is some amazing work. You know, people talk about my grandmother's generation, where like she rode in a horse and carriage and then saw somebody land on the moon. But I got to tell you, going from histories like the the biographies of kings to a database of pederasts is feels a lot bigger to me <laughs> that just feels like an immense change that we've seen in our lifetime it's, it's so that's it's so great i'm so happy about that as well as intellectually enchanted i want to read everything it's just 
wow, is that cool? And I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that all of this is a political project, but it does have a political edge to it because it has to do with validating, uh, recapturing the lives and validating the experience of, of ordinary people, as opposed to the people who have uh, dominated the study of history in past, certainly when we learned history in the olden days. Way back when, yeah, wonderful. Ah, yeah, we gotta we gotta stop this conversation. But thank you so. I and I suspect we could go on for a while on this, but we'll we'll close off right now. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. This has been absolutely delightful. Thank you so much for the invitation, and it's been a great pleasure talking with you. <laughs>